on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Myth is kind of the language of the imagination. It's the language of psyche, of soul. It's how the world soul, how the imaginal world communicates with us in these stories, these very, very fundamental stories that we are so attuned to because psychology tells us, neuroscience, which was my first background, tells us that we are very much narrative creatures. You know, we're storytelling creatures. And so we think in narrative, we think in story. And myth is is kind of like the, the, the most fundamental fundamental story of all. Myth is explanatory. It tells us how the world is, why the world is, what our place in it is. And it is full, absolutely founded on archetypal imagery. These are the building blocks of the of the universe, you know, the, the, these patterns, these images, are the building blocks of soul, of psyche. And so I think that's why myth is, is so very, very important. It positions us in the world and in the cosmos. What does it mean to be a man today? The old archetypes of masculinity are dissolving, and the new ones are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Dr. Sharon Blackie is an award-winning writer, teacher, and speaker, aimed at cultivating the mythic imagination. She is the author of numerous books, including If Women Rose Rooted, and the host of her own podcast, This Mythic Life. Sharon specializes in the myths, folklore, and fairy tales of the Celtic nations and the British Isles. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with her about her historical and psychological insight into the masculine, from understanding the role of myth to re-examining classic stories like the quest for the grail. Finally, we touch on the post-heroic journey and the importance of asking the right questions for this turbulent time. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Ian. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. I'm delighted to be on your show. I've admired your beautiful films for quite a number of years now, so it's lovely to be talking to you. Mm, thank you. Uh, I'd love to take a moment and just, if you could situate us where you are right now. I'm in the far west of Ireland, uh, far west of the city of Galway, um, in a place called Connemara, which is full of bogs and mountains and hills and lochs and all of those fine Irish things. We haven't shared about this yet, but, uh, but I actually have family in Ireland. Oh, cool. Which part? Just over, well, just outside Dublin and uh, Dunboyne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, mostly, though, out uh, west uh, in Sligo Town. Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, which I was there a couple of years ago, actually, for the first time. Yeah, it was a profound kind of reckoning, actually, with, you know, my own ancestry. And, you know, my grandma came over in the mid-50s over to Canada. And that's sort of where the Irish line came over. And, of course, a number of them stayed. And... It was a yeah. It was just profound to, you know. They say sometimes that you go you go back quote you know quote back for those that left and and there's a sense of home, or like mm-hmm. wow I finally arrived you know and uh, yeah. and for me yeah for me it was really interesting because it was sort of a combination of a, a this uh, what I'd call it a, 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 maybe an older ancestral you know whisper mm-hmm. and at the same time something very unfamiliar 
Yeah, I think here in Ireland, the, the, the ancestral pull, particularly to the land, is very, very strong. And I find that anybody with Irish genes, you know, no matter how far back it goes in their ancestry, when they come here for the first time, they recognize the place and maybe the place recognizes them. Well, this podcast is called The Mythic Masculine. I would love maybe for you to be, begin by just sharing what, you know, with your own background, what drew you to even you know, as you say, you knew some of my works and so there was interest there, but what was it about the frame or the invitation to speak on the mythic masculine that, you know, felt compelling to you? Well, precisely because most of my work is about the mythic feminine. And uh, of course, although I've focused very much on the myths and stories of women, because I think that is important in these days when women are trying so hard to find their voices again, you know, the voices that have been, we've been deprived of for centuries, but you cannot clearly consider the mythic feminine without some context of the mythic masculine. And to me, that whole potential for regaining women's voices is not in opposition to regaining men's voices. It's just approaching it perhaps in a different way. So I find it very exciting. And it's interesting, you know, in, in all of my work, not all of my work is, is for women only. I do work with men too. There is a real engagement from many men in this whole idea of how we, how we reimagine ourselves, how we reimagine our relationships. What does it mean to be a woman in the world today? What does it mean to be a man in the world today? And so that interplay is really, really important to me mm. i would love even for you to speak from your own understanding about what is mythology you know taking right right back there that i think for maybe a number of people who are experiencing the word for the first time or maybe a version of the word that you know often means in the culture as you know something that's not true you know mm, oh, oh it's a myth great, you know it, didn't, it never happened and so i would love even to hear your take on, on what is mythology I guess I come to mythology from actually from a psychology background. And of course, you know, ever since Jung, it is really the world, I think, of depth psychology, archetypal psychology, which has kind of reinstated mythology in public and, and intellectual discourse that's made it relevant and real again. Because the whole idea there would be that, that you know, that myth is kind of the language of the imagination it's the language of psyche of soul it's how the world soul how the imaginal world communicates with us in these stories these very very fundamental stories that we are so attuned to because psychology tells us neuroscience which was my first background tells us that we are very much narrative creatures you know we're storytelling creatures and so we think in narrative we think in story and myth is is kind of like the the, the most fundamental story of all myth is it tells us how the world is, why the world is, what our place in it is. And it is full, absolutely founded on archetypal imagery. You know, and, and, and archetypes, the archetypal patterns, archetypal imagery, archetypal themes and stories are according to not just to Jung and to depth psychologists, but going all the way back to Plato and ancient Greece. These are the building blocks of the of the universe, you know, the, the, these patterns, these images, are the building blocks of soul, of psyche, and so I think that's why myth is is so very very important. It tells us literally there are all kinds of ways of defining myth, but it basically it tells us it positions us in the world and in the cosmos, if you like. Hmm. Beautiful. I love that. Could you speak as well? I think you touched on it too. But what is an archetype even now within that understanding? An archetype is basically a fundamental pattern that cannot be reduced any further. So I'm going to use an obvious one, 
in terms of archetypal characters and forgive me if I use a female character because it's just easier for me it's more natural so we all have the concept of the old woman okay let's say the wise old woman or you could do that with a wise old man as well when you say that to somebody everybody has an image of it everybody kind of knows what it is it's an underlying pattern we have certain expectations of it but that is that is kind of like a fundamental pattern that has no clothes so uh, so what then needs to happen is that needs to be translated into um, relevance for particular cultures particular societies so the wise old woman in the Irish and Scottish Gaelic traditions becomes the Kaliach, the, the old woman, the fierce old woman who created and shaped the land. In the Native American tradition, she might become Grandmother Spider. In the Slavic tradition, she might become Baba Yaga. You know, so archetypes are these basic patterns that are potentials that we recognize, but then they kind of like in the mythology, in the fairy tales of individual cultures, they take on the clothes and the behavior, if you like, of, of those cultures. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think it speaks to maybe a, a, a tension that I felt sometimes with, you know, naming or working with archetypes that in some ways they feel, or they can feel like almost like a universal imposition on, mm-hmm. on specific cultures. And at the same time, what I'm hearing is that, as you say, that there is this, these like blueprints that are really the fundamental energies or patterns and that they, then they are clothed within the specific culture. And so there is, yeah, yeah deep room for that uniqueness. Exactly. But the important thing to to me in all of this work, and it's something that I I often find that people don't necessarily think of or or grasp, is that these archetypes, the the clothing that they wear in individual cultures and individual societies are supposed to change. You know, so in this old way of looking at the world from the ancient Greeks, the ancient Sufis, you know, all of the spiritualities and philosophies that are founded on this way, this archetypal way of looking at the world, archetypes are themselves like human beings in a process of becoming. You know, they're not fixed. They're not static. We can't confine them and say, you know, 2000 years ago, that was who you were. You can't could have changed anymore. And so the archetypes change with the times and we can reimagine them. You know, it's kind of an act of co-creation. So that's the exciting thing that I find about archetypes. Mm. Well, um, would you speak about maybe how you first encountered this? I mean, is it cosmology? I mean, you, you mentioned depth psychology, but maybe like your first encounter or one with with myth or with the aliveness of it that perhaps you know reoriented your own you know view of the world Gosh, I think actually that was before I started, before I, I studied psychology and, and mythology. And I, I say I call myself a mythologist because I have a master's degree in Celtic studies, which is very much about the Celtic, um, about the myth, mythology and folklore of um, the Celtic world. Uh, but that came later. But really, I was introduced to myth um, very, very early in life, because although I grew up in the north of in the northeast of England, uh, far northeast of England, my family, my dad's family was Scottish. My mother's family was partly Irish. And so I mm. grew up in that rich oral folklore tradition, you know, where stories were were real. It was just everywhere and steeped in them. And so I remember as a small child getting very excited, not about the kind of, you know, French romance, Camelot-esque mm-hmm. um, perspective of King Arthur, but the very old stories of Arthur and his knights and Merlin and all of those characters. And, you know, literally sitting down at like eight years of age, mm-hmm. trying to, to draw lists of the Arthurian knights in, you know, in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur and comparing that with the Welsh Mabinogian and wondering why they had different names. And, you know, <laughs> I never actually joined it all up, but that passion for 
for myth was there at a very, very early age and it mm. never left me. But it wasn't really until I had kind of reinvented my approach to psychology because I started off in a very scientific way as a neuroscientist. And I began to specialize in working with, with what I call narrative psychology, which is working with story, working with myth, working with fairy tale to to promote, to encourage transformation in your clients. And of course, the great thing about story is that it helps people reimagine things differently. You know, you mm. capture people's imagination. They can see the possibility for change. They get very excited about reimagining themselves. And so I began to work more again with myth and with fairy tale, I guess, when I was about 40 and I, and I was, um, yeah, I was reinventing my approach to psychology. Mm. What do you think is behind or maybe some of the reasons that there seems to be a bit of a renaissance or a resurgence of maybe the, the capacity or the skillfulness to to perceive and to speak in myth in mythic language or, or to to invoke the mythic imagination, you know, in the culture at large. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that that happens. And Jung was a very interesting man. You know, there are all kinds of things that Jung wrote about that don't seem to get the attention that some of his easier stuff does. And, and Jung mm. had this idea that when when the cultural mythology, you know, the dominant mythology of a culture begins to fail, that people revert to kind of older types of behavior and to older sources of wisdom. And they, and then the myth-making capacity, he says very specifically, lies with individuals. So if you think mm. of our culture at the moment, you know this, you know, the dominant myths we live by, progress, the myth of more, the myth of individuality and heroism, you know, all of those kinds of things that have got us, frankly, into the mess that we are in now, mm -hmm. they are crumbling, very clearly mm -hmm. crumbling. They're not actually functioning for the world. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are beginning to reject them. So in those situations, Jung would say people have a tendency to go back to basics to, to actually mm -hmm. to kind of almost recognize that these are myths after all, you know, mm -hmm. not just givens that 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 we're supposed to automatically accept and then the the myth-making ability lies with individuals and so people start to question the stories that they live by and mm -hmm. often in order to do that we go back to old ways and we begin to see their relevance for today mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah it makes me think too that that old in the sense is or maybe could be seen as perhaps a, the return you know, but uh, often I think of a spiral that, yeah. that, you know, what was in the, in the quote past is resurges now, but in current times and in that sense is, is forced per se, but or invited to be reimagined, you know, by the cultural moment. And I think it's interesting to even think about this moment, particularly for men and women. And of course, this podcast largely looks to the, the masculine archetypes. And I'm curious how, how would you situate us into this cultural moment with, the the relations between the genders you know we've seen me too uh, at large and and often the, you know patriarchy is seen as the ultimate evil and you know from a mythic lens how do you how would you tell the story of this moment i don't know that i can easily answer that in terms of a story but i would just mm -hmm. say for for one thing i would say and i'm not the first to say it the patriarchy has damaged men as much as it's damaged women so i don't see it as you know blaming the patriarchy that we we have to blame men i think there are i think there are many many situations that show that men have been just as traumatized by the state of the world as women have it's just in, perhaps in, in different ways so i think to me i mean it's not so much a story but but looking at it through a mythic lens i suppose mm -hmm. what i would be focusing on is how we move out of that concept of the hero's journey 
to live mm. by into mm. a kind of post-heroic journey. And I think the post-heroic journey is as relevant for men as it is for women. Mm. And so I'd like to, if you just bear with me a second, you know, if you go back to Joseph Campbell, who mm. first coined the phrase, uh, American mythologist who first coined the phrase, the hero's journey, he was a, a white middle-class American male who mm. was writing that the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that gave rise to that concept in the 1940s. You know, he was a man of his time. He was a man of America, of America's mm-hmm. time. It was very individualistic. It was very swashbuckling. It was all about <laughs> the great American hero. It was all about becoming great. And you could see where that concept of the hero's journey came from. Mm-hmm. That was never going to work for most women anyway. Mm-hmm. Women just mm-hmm. don't engage with the world in the way that Campbell wanted his heroes to. Mm-hmm. But I think increasingly, over the decades, men also are beginning to realize that that heroic journey is not serving them. That idea that you must go out there as an individual, that, that, that you must kill a dragon rather than try to actually see what qualities a dragon might have that you can mm-hmm. engage with and use. Uh-huh. You know, you, yeah. you make the dragon part of your team. That whole idea that, that it's not about uh, while we all have to grow and to transform, it's not just about us. It's about community. It's about engagement mm-hmm. with the wider world around us. It's it's a, that whole approach, I think. I would, I would frame it, if I had to frame it at all, and it's difficult to, I would frame it perhaps as a transition from a heroic journey, which is very male-oriented, very masculine-oriented, mm-hmm. into a post-heroic phase, which is equally relevant to men and to women. It's just about a different way of being in the world and looking at it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I would love to even to hear a bit more about, you see, the post-heroic. Is there like a, I know with um, the hero's journey, there's the structure of the, I think it's like, you know, hearing the call, refusing the call, crossing the threshold. There's these particular points along that structural narrative. And would you be able to speak a little about the structural narrative of the post-heroic journey? Yeah, I mean, the way that I look at it, all of these journeys come from cultural anthropology, you know, this idea that there are different phases. So so Joseph Campbell took his idea of the hero's journey basically from cultural anthropology and a guy called von Gennep, who was looking at initiatory experiences in tribal communities uh, back around the turn of the previous century. And he said that in all of those experiences and all of this conception of how you move on through the world, there were three phases. And they are roughly, people call them different things, but you can roughly think of them as separation, you know, separation mm-hmm. from the normal world, from your everyday, something is broken, mm-hmm. or something needs to change off you go you're separated then you have the initiation phase which is kind of a testing phase where all of the good stuff happens and you get kind of like you know put through a mangle and come (laughs) back out again the road of trials which which Campbell would have called that and then the return which has a tendency in the hero's journey to be cut off a little bit it's just like oh yeah then you go back with the gift and that's that but in the Mm post-heroic journey the return and the quality of the return I think would be you know very much different so I see all journeys with a capital J whether it's the hero's journey, the heroine's journey, the post-heroic journey, as having these three phases naturally. Mm. I don't mm-hmm. think that's where they differentiate, but I think where they differentiate is kind of almost the point of the journey. And I think that the hero's journey is very much about you as an individual, your overcoming, you uh-huh. bringing a great gift back to the world and becoming great. I mean, you know, some of the people that uh, Campbell is talking about Jesus and Buddha, you know, mm. yeah, as, his, yeah. as his heroes. I mean, he's not talking about your average Joe. And so I think the, the post-heroic journey is just, just much 
less of a focus on the individual, more a focus on the community, much mm -hmm. less focus on a kind of physical strength and maybe a focus, you know, more of a focus on different ways of, of expressing strength and mm -hmm. what strength might be other than literally overcoming in battle. And, and yeah, so I think that, that really it's not so much a question of structure. It's more a question of looking at the nature the, 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 of the individual phases and what they might, what they might express. And so to me, if I do you mind me just going on a little bit more? Sure, please do. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the classic example of this is actually the Grail story, you know, because that has been interpreted by Campbell and others for centuries as a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You know, the knight goes off in search of the Grail, and he, that knight, finds it. He becomes the Grail king or the Grail knight. He mm -hmm. attains the Grail and brings it back to the world, and it's all desperately heroic. But, you know, if you go back to the original stories, that's not how it is at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a modern lens being placed on old stories. In the original stories, well, not the very original ones, but the ones that were written down by people like Chrétien de Troyes and uh, Wolf, Wolfgang von Eschenbach in the, say, 12th and 13th centuries, mm -hmm. Percival, the knight who sets off on this quest, he doesn't attain the grail because he cuts the head off a dragon or mm. he slays a bad knight or he wins a battle. He attains the grail because he finally learns that he has to ask a question of the wounded fisher king, you know, the king whose mm. wound has caused the wasteland. And that question is a simple, compassionate, what ails thee? So what wins the day, if I must use the heroic language, is mm -hmm. not a swashbuckling, overcoming palaver of the kind that we see in so many mm -hmm. Hollywood movies. It, mm -hmm. is, it is Percival recognising that that compassionate approach, you just have to ask the right question. That's mm. what attains the grail. And the grail in the ancient Celtic culture was none of the things that people think of it as being now. It was the wisdom and the nourishment and the inspiration of the other world. So I think a lot mm. of it is, as I say, is about reframing rather than kind of entirely rewriting. Mm -hmm. mm, I love that. What is the right question or the, yeah. the ability to ask the right question? Yeah, you, you speaking of that reframe as well, I'm really struck by seeing a number of examples, I feel, of this, I'll say, alternate or, or reorientation of the main narrative you know in some hollywood films i mean in particular i'm curious if you've seen the moana no i haven't okay let me let me just book the, bookmark that one for you because i feel like i don't know if i can give it away or not but um <laughs> let's just say that the the finale in that film uh, and the way that the what's presented as what has gone wrong with the world or, or the evil in the world mm -hmm. um the way that it's approached by the in this case the female heroine is profound actually, because it speaks to very much like what you're saying, that this idea that the, in fact, the hero in the film, uh, who's portrayed uh, by The Rock, actually, Dwayne Johnson, uh, this uh, warrior who, in fact, often is actually kind of bumbling his way and kind of messing, messing up the joint. And that the female heroine in this case is able to, I guess, make contact with what is perceived to be evil mm -hmm. in a way that's actually from a much more compassionate sort of integrated place. And right. And so I recommend one that you check that out when you get a moment. I'm writing it down now. <laughs> yeah. And and also to say that it from the lens of what you're asking, yeah, it's deeply profound to me because I do think that it 
it's let's say it's it's an orientation and I, see, I hear you say the stages of the journeys are uh, they have uh let's say they they mimic the same stages but it feels like there's a reorientation rather than like overcoming or or maybe dominating you know or quote winning this kind of language that it's about relationship yeah i think so and it's also about a slight revisioning of the the concept of the warrior archetype which you know mm. is often tied up with the hero archetype rightly or wrongly mm. and you know i have a, a great interest in that because i am married to a man who for his sins for 26 years was in the um, the royal air force in the uk mm. Mm. Uh, flying fast jets is well out of it now uh, many many years out of it but i've had some really interesting conversations with him about what makes a good warrior you know about the necessity for the warrior archetype because i think it's too easy these days to say oh, we don't need that you know war is bad battle is bad mm -hmm. warriors mm -hmm. are bad let's just let's just not go there and yeah. for women particularly i think are particularly bad at, at dealing with the warrior archetype mm. but i think that there are many many fine things about it if you actually go beyond the cutting the heads off dragons and i think mm -hmm. that compassionate that ability to know when to stop that ability to know that it's not about cutting heads off but it's actually about asking the right question those checks and balances that are kind of built into the concept of a good warrior is part of what i see in you know in the grail story and what's and, and it also it also fades into other really interesting archetypes which again mm. in the irish tradition i think they can teach us a lot about maybe how to revisit some of this stuff so the concept of king mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the irish tradition is very very important so there's i've i've written a lot about the old concept of the goddess of sovereignty which is the female divine in in the irish tradition which is about she represents the the, the land literally um the qualities of the land and the other world as it impacts on the on the land as it fertilizes mm. the land as it nourishes mm -hmm. the land but in the irish tradition right up until the 16th century there was a real live set of um, kingship rights where the king had to marry the land there was a ceremonial mm. marriage between the king and the land and it's called the banisteri literally you know the, the marriage of the king and it involved this recognition that the king had to respect the land in order to be a good king mm. now if you go back to the old documents it's very clear on what makes a good king and mm. it's all about qualities of it's not about you know brilliance in battle at all it's all about qualities of discernment and judgment and what mm. used to be called the prince's truth literally the prince's truth an, an act of truth which if it was done properly would bring abundance and and even miracles to the land and if it was done badly you know if the king made a bad judgment and didn't show discernment then literally you know he would no longer be able to be king or the mm. land would suffer the land would become a wasteland so this whole mm. idea of righteousness of judgment of right living of discernment is all tied up with the key qualities of a king and i mm. think that's a good you know that's another that's relevant today Mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. absolutely and i feel there's something around this uh, maybe right use of power mm -hmm. that i feel is in this and that uh, there's uh certainly examples of looking to trump and the white house and you know others where clearly that doesn't seem to be the orientation with this idea of you know being married to the land and that you know that their discernment that their ability to make decisions is deeply yeah. tied to you know the their their service really and yeah. you know in um king warrior magician lover which is the you know sort of companion mm. book uh, that came out with around the time of iron john of course with robert yeah. Bly, that they talk yeah. about this idea of the the adolescent archetype of the king 
or the shadow element, right, is the tyrant king, yeah, um, exactly. which is where there's still a boy psychology, but with, you know, within the seat of power that's meant to be held by the king. Yeah. So, so I feel that's deeply relevant to this time in particular, in a way I feel to, to discern or to maybe be able to see that that itself, you know, the, the inability to serve from a proper seat of what, an, let's say, a noble king or a good king is. Often I feel a reaction can be, well, we don't need kings anymore, right? That they, the, the sense of, oh, the problem is that there's, there's a king, so we get rid of the king and then suddenly <laughs> things will be great. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm too old to buy that one anymore. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah, there the, there is always a need. I think in in functioning societies for some kind of organisation. And you know, indigenous cultures, all of the indigenous cultures that, on the one hand, we admire when it suits us, and we ignore mm-hmm. when it comes to things yeah. like that, all have some element of leadership. But it is community based mm-hmm. leadership, and mm-hmm. it's based on things like compassion and good judgment, not on you know right is might. Mm-hmm. And our indigenous culture, are, you know the indigenous culture of Ireland and Scotland and to, to some extent the extent that we know it the rest of the British Isles it's mm-hmm. very much about this that this is what makes a good king that the battles and the heroic stories are, are kind of almost by the by and I often think that particularly when you know we look at the the stories of, of our culture that too much emphasis is put on the sagas on the hero sagas of which mm. there are many you know Cúchulain mm-hmm. and all of those guys I mean yeah they had a great warriors and all of the rest of it but <laughs> but they were always in service to the land Mm-hmm. You know, if you really, if you know those stories and you know the culture and the background from which those stories emerged, the whole point of what Cúchulain did was he was in service to the land of Ulster. You know, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. wasn't about individual glory. That was just a byproduct. So I love the fact that if you go back to the old stories and you actually take the time, and it does take quite a long time because they're complicated, mm-hmm. you know, to, to delve into what was the grail really? You know, what were they trying to say here? What mm-hmm. were the heroes actually trying to do? It mm-hmm. just puts a completely different framework on it. And we're the ones who've misinterpreted it and got it wrong over the years, I think, frankly. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, going back to the old story sounds very regressive, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But it's not um, at all, because I think there was a wisdom there that our mm-hmm. ancestors had that we can bring into the present day. And you're absolutely right about the spiraling you know it's not a circling back to something mm-hmm. that went before it is mm-hmm. a spiraling outwards you know when you circle back you pick something else up and you go mm-hmm. out and you mm-hmm. pick it up something else up the next time around so it's never a complete circle i think my sense is that's why the spiral was so important in the artwork of our cultures because they understood that at some level mm. you reminded me actually of my time in ireland when i came across different neolithic sites that even the road signs actually have spirals on them yeah. That, was, that was the way in which they actually indicated, oh, this is a Neolithic site. And I thought that was actually fascinating that they would choose to indicate that symbol uh, or that symbol would indicate that understanding, even even down to the road signs. Exactly. And, I, you know, it's it's a reflection of the cosmology of, of, of Ireland and, and of those times, which was, you know, they had no concept of linear time, really. And that's the other thing that I have always objected mm. to about Campbell's mm. Hero's Journey. It's very linear. But, you know, in our traditions and our old native traditions, there was this sense of everything going around. But it wasn't really a circle. People often call it a circle. It really wasn't a circle because you didn't end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you literally ended up in a, in a spiral. And it's a complete hypothesis of mine i have no evidence for it but i think that that was really what the spiral was representing Hmm. would you just spend a moment if you could just illuminate a little further you know if if not linear time which as you say is very much the the understanding of the modern age and where progress is only possible with an understanding of linear time could you speak a little bit about 
spiral time uh, or how it was held within yeah these these older cultures yeah just because there was such an emphasis on on cycles and seasons and on things coming round again at every mm-hmm. level you know so we have this great concept of of the ritual year in the celtic traditions which is very much that sense that that you know the yearly cycle is just going to come again that this is natural things get light things get dark mm-hmm. things grow things stop growing that this process of apparently reverting back but it isn't really as i say you're picking up something you should go along mm-hmm. uh, even in the structure of the year is a natural thing and you also see it really in their concepts of death you know there is no sense really we don't know i have to say i should say before mm-hmm. i go on that we have no written evidence of of the spiritual beliefs of our ancestors we don't Mm. we can Mm. infer a lot from archaeology we can infer a lot from folklore but we really are inferring Mm. it was never written down in the same way that the stories were because it was all written down by christian monks and of course they weren't Mm. going to write down a competing religion you know but as far as we can tell there was this great sense of life being circular as well you know we have some suggestions that there was evidence of a belief in kind of reincarnation. Mm. At a minimum, the soul, when it departed this life, went into an ancestral other world, you know, from which it could sometimes pop back into this world. There was no sense of a beginning, a middle and an end. There was always a sense of things carrying on and circle and time circling back around again. Mm. And it's, it really is, it's kind of difficult to put any more meat on it than that because it's just a fundamental way of, of perceiving the world. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I understand you've also done a fair amount of research on the wild man. Um, yeah. And, and maybe is that this, or maybe I could say at least my take, um, you know, largely from reading Robert Bly and Aaron John, and there's a big, you know, scene where of course the boy encounters the wild man, um, which is found at the bottom of the swamp. Actually the hunter buckets out the swamp and you know, finds the wild man at the bottom, hairy and, you know, mean and the whole thing. And they get the soldiers, they drag him in chains to the uh, castle courtyard and it's when the young prince encounters the wild man in the cage. And there's a whole sequence where, you know, he loses his ball and he's got to let him out by getting the key under his mother's pillow. And then he kind of kicks off the initiatory <laughs> threshold for the boy uh, yeah. within that story. And I would love to hear more about, you know, your research into the wild man. Um, maybe that either Bly was drawing from or, or as it just a, an archetype pattern that you've, you know, you've explored yeah, I would say that I come to it from a slightly different perspective, which mm-hmm. is kind of like what you know, the the like the real live wild men in medieval culture in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And you know, there did exist a strong belief in the wild people who were this kind of like raggle taggle group of folk who inhabited mm-hmm. the unsettled, uncultivated woodlands be, beyond the, the civilized society. They rode stags, you know, bareback in contrast to the very saddled, bridled kind of stately horses of the archetypical mm. medieval knight. Lots of names for them throughout Europe. They, they, were, they were feared at the beginning of the medieval period. But later they began to, to, to actually to, to, to be more interested in them because there was this cultural crisis, you know, against mm. the oppressions of the old feudal order. And so this kind of provoked a lot of disillusionment with a state of civilization in, in mm. medieval times. And so the idea of the wild man began to represent something positive, which was an escape from civilization's corrupting mm. influence, you know, through a rejection of its social values and, you know, all of that kind of thing. Mm, uh, wow. There was a great frustration as well with the sterility of the, the kind of chivalric knight lifestyle that led to a, a growing interest in folk culture and the pastoral. So in a sense, you could look at those wild people as a kind of medieval rejection of civilization, mm-hmm. a kind of uncivilizing of medieval culture. Mm. But the, the, what's interesting in the stories that I, in my 
culture in, in the Irish and Scottish and Northern British traditions is that we have a lot of examples in the old myths and the old literature of men who are warriors who engage in really serious and pretty vile battles and who are so traumatized by the experience that mm. they they take off into the woods and the hills and turn into wild men perhaps the mm. the most famous would be sweeney in the irish tradition you know mm. who's traumatized by a battle and literally grows bird feathers and flies off into the irish mountains the other wild man before he began to to be kind of like recomposed in the um, french arthurian romances was Mer mervyn who is mm. the you know the early equivalent of, of merlin and the earliest poem about this character mervyn merlin suggests that he had been a warrior of some reputation but he lost his reason as a consequence of the battle and so he joined the company of the wild men in the woods now what happens to these warriors when they undergo this drastic initiatory experience you know they're completely traumatized by battle mm -hmm. is that they turn into poets and prophets they're kind mm. of freed from the shackles of civilization and from the, you know, this necessity to kill, 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 to butcher, because these are very butchering battles that they're fleeing mm. from. And then they become this kind of otherworldly, kind of almost shamanic, prophetic poet, bard, filly, you know, whichever word you want to use. And it's mm. a really interesting transformation, it seems to me, that there, you know, there's something in rising above that and escaping from it that, that is a very beautiful idea. Hmm. Wow, I love that uh, as a as a kind of arc of transformation. Yeah, um, and the way that you describe the that time, this idea of you know being uh, stifled by the uh, what feels like this oppression of the time, as you said, or the the unconcretized way of the knights, let's say, and the wild becomes now a kind of noble, maybe not an escape per se, but maybe a kind of re reinvigoration of a relationship to the wild or to the forest. Yeah. And and it's fascinating to me too to think about like archetypal transformation stories even now. Of course, like the way that that period is described uh, feels very relevant actually to today. Mm. And it's interesting to me that, you know, if you look to films like, you know, it, actually 1999 to me was such a fascinating year for film because uh, particularly for men as well, because 1999 was both the year that Fight Club came out yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as American Beauty. Which, which you know, both profound films in their own way, and it feels that like this. Both were rejections of the the kind of let's say banality of that's you know late nineties you know America, and from a from a perspective of relative you know comfort, let's say middle class you know comfort, and and both were rejections that one one like Fight Club vectored into you know mercenary violence in a way, but also mm -hmm. based upon a, a kind of a will to reinvigorate an aliveness and maybe the wildness of the city, you know, outside the bounds of civility. Whereas American Beauty felt like, you know, with the awakening of Lester Burnham kind of, you know, rejected this idea of the nine to five, just make it work, you know, man. Mm. And so yeah. it's interesting that the arc that you speak to, again, I don't, I don't hear a sort of champion of empire or something that, that <laughs> or even the, even the hero of the perhaps what gave meaning as you say to campbell's time you know for men was to become this you know say swashbuckling hero i see yeah. this call that the men become poets yeah right? which, absolutely yeah, yeah. which is which so it's is more than 
yeah, it's more than just a rejection of civilization. It's not that would be very dull, you know, so off they go into mm -hmm. the woods and then that's it. They've gone into the woods and that's their statement. Well, well done. It's more than that, because once they've gone into the woods, then there's a transformation. And the whole point of the power of stories, you know, fairy tales or folk tales of myths is that they are at the heart of them is transformation. They help us to reimagine mm -hmm. ourselves. They help us to reimagine the world differently and our place in the world differently. And there you have it. You know, there's out of the horror of war because they've had, they, they've, been able to make that break they've gone off into the woods comes a poet and a prophet you know someone who is mm. absolutely tuned into the wisdom of the other world or other worlds and it's brilliant mm. i love it i think it's a i think it's a really interesting story for for men in a way that goes a little bit beyond what Bly did. and i'm not in any way criticizing what Bly did. i think it's a very mm -hmm. fine book you know but it, there's a these old these very very ancient legends i think sometimes have a, a different kind of raw more relevant truth to them mm -hmm. um, and this this one is just something that I don't see people writing about a lot I mean you've got to delve quite a bit into Celtics you know studies and old documents mm -hmm. to, to find this stuff out but gosh it's there there are so many characters there's also a wonderful female character um, mm -hmm. which is how I came to to investigating this called Mish who is you know kind of like a female equivalent of, of um, her, her father dies in battle and she finds mm -hmm. his severed head on the battlefield and off she flies into the woods and the wilderness and she becomes the fiercest wild woman so fierce that she basically half of Kerry you know she depopulates <laughs> because mm. they're petrified of her and the <laughs> interesting thing about this story isn't just that she is a female wild woman you know rather than a wild man but mm -hmm. she is gradually brought back to her senses again and I mean her senses I don't mean her mm. intellect because all of the famous warriors of the king's court too frightened to go after her. And so along comes a gentle harper called Davrush. And Davrush goes off into the Kerry Mountains armed with his harp and a bag of money. And he mm. sits down in the woods and he starts to play his harp. And Mish hasn't heard music for a long time, so she's drawn to him. And to cut a very, very long story short, he entices her by basically being unclothed and offering to her all of his worldly goods um, <laughs> below the waist. And he basically <laughs> has sex with Mish. And he it's through that very tender, and there's a beautiful tenderness in this old story. You know, he has sex with her and then he he dips her into hot broth and he scrubs the hair off her, you know, day after day after day. And he will not allow her to eat raw meat. He insists on it being on it being cooked and there's just this beautiful <laughs> tenderness and and where he does this by again by compassion and tenderness he brings this woman who's beautiful then in the end you know of course as she was in the beginning uh, mm. just by virtue of his kind of like love and affection and respect for her and that's the Irish hero you know it's mm. not all about chopping heads off it's really interesting mm. I love this stuff yeah sorry I'm getting carried away with enthusiasm mm -hmm. but um no I love it yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and it's remarkable too, because I think, you know, certainly the stories I heard growing up uh, or, you know, movies I watched, there was very rare examples of that kind of, maybe you could call it masculine tenderness. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. That often it would be, it would be just assumed it'd be the other way around that, you know, the, the, the man is the brute and, or the warrior that needs to be, you know, brought back uh, through mm. compassion and tenderness and to see the roles reversed, uh, you know, it really awakens a, just a beautiful image in me. Yeah, and this is old, you know, this is not a modern reinvention of something mm. because we like that way better. It's old, old, old. And that was how the world was, was perceived. Mm. Well, how do you see then for maybe the men that you meet or come across or, or that come to you, you know, study with you? Like, what do you see as the, I don't know, maybe the reoccurring, maybe 
wound that they carry or bewilderment now in this time? I think the thing that I see that is very difficult for men to get over clearly is they see so a lot of the men and this is just the men that come to my courses and and you know Mm -hmm. let's face it even when I do a course that is open to both men and women and relevant to both men and women because I do so much work with women it has to be a particularly brave man maybe to take Mm -hmm. it on but clearly I think what they are what I see a lot is men who are confused because they see women reinventing themselves and they Mm -hmm. see women finding power and strength of a different kind in these old stories and going back and saying yes you know in all of the indigenous cultures women were the land they were the voices of the land and they were the, the voices of the earth. And, and the men are asking, well, then what is there for us? You know, mm. what do you want from us? And that's a very, very difficult question for a woman to answer, you know, because it's, it's not really for, for us to say or to tell. But that, I would say, is, is the, 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 the overwhelming sense that I am getting that men just don't know what to do because they're still somehow seeing themselves in in some way in in opposition to females in order to ask mm-hmm. that question in the first place do you, do you see what I'm, I mean mm-hmm. and so it doesn't matter that women are finding their voices again it doesn't stop you from finding your voices again you know but do it in a way that coincides that enmeshes that entangles that provides different qualities you know when somebody asks me you know what do you want from a man you know if, if you have this concept of the the female as the voice of the earth what you want and it you know i will answer i want i want the warrior of the earth Hmm. you know i i think those Mm -hmm. i want the king i want the discernment i want the the intellect the sharp good judgment that we're talking about you know we're talking about masculine and feminine qualities we're not gendering Mm -hmm. this just for clarity but these are so very important when we have a world that's challenged uh, you know, and I was talking to, I've done, uh, did a workshop recently with Pat McCabe, Woman Stand mm. Shining, who is a mm-hmm. member of the Diné Navajo tribe in America. And she, she has also asked this question and, you know, looks at things like Standing Rock. And it's just like, yeah, you need men to, to show up, but to show up in the right kind of way with discernment, asking the questions, doing things that we're just, you know, not capable of. Let's face it, there are physical differences. Mm-hmm. And, but just to do it from an entwined position, from a community position, from a sharing position, rather than from this individualistic, heroic position. So I think that men are absolutely critical to the way that we are going to, uh, let's just say, save the world, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, change the world, re envision the world. But it's mm-hmm. just that we need to do it in, in tandem and coming at it from an equal perspective. I don't want men to feel less equal to me any more than I've wanted mm-hmm. to feel less equal to them for most of my life. I mm-hmm. really, really think we all need to step up in our different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you highlight something that, you know, is interesting to come across. And I think you, you touched on it briefly around this idea of masculine, feminine, and then not being tied to gender. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting because, you know, for me, I also find that because largely there is a, a, a kind of I don't know, expansive, say, rousing gender reimagining going on largely, you know, across much of uh, yeah. modernity, modernity. And and it is fascinating. And I find, depending on the circles I'm in, of course, that even just to get a kind of shared understanding that there is such a thing called men and there is such a thing called women uh, <laughs> is itself like can be you know highly contested. And yeah. And so even these words, you know, masculinity or femininity or the, or the masculine or the feminine can bring about highly charged, you know, conversations where, you know, some believe that the using that language in a way creates the problem. And again, maybe it's this idea of this reactivity that I feel that perhaps tosses out the something else, though, like inadvertently tosses out perhaps what I feel to be the the deep richness of of a story like that. 
you know, somebody just says, I don't know, yin and yang, let's say, you know, often they say de-gender completely, let's say, or, or not even bring about the possibility that it might be linked to gender, these polarities, let's say. I don't know. I feel like something gets lost. And I, uh, Yeah, I agree yeah. wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just wonder maybe if you could speak a bit about maybe if so, why you do maybe stand on the side of it is valuable actually to use this language. It, yeah, I'd love to hear more. I guess it's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, we're all children of our times, you know, and I'm getting mm -hmm. on for 60 now. So I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a world where gender was not discussed so freely. So in mm -hmm. a sense, it, it, you know, it is, it, I don't see it as particularly shocking to, to talk about men and women or to talk about male and female qualities. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's just something that's my going in point. I, I should say before I carry on that there are a number of world mythologies and folklore systems where a third sex is recognized that is neither male mm -hmm. nor female. Mm -hmm. You know, if we go back to the myths and the fairy tales that it, it's not all binary but apart from that i think the, the way that i look at it is this and i you know i don't say this in any way to offend anyone i think that mm -hmm. i think that these qualities of masculine and feminine blur and blend and interweave and entangle and so they should mm -hmm. but you know there are things that there are experiences that, that i have as, in a woman's body that mm -hmm. are specific to having a woman's body you know, mm -hmm. there is the obvious things like the capacity for giving birth, the particular traumas that can be inflicted upon it, the mm -hmm. monthly cycles of hormonal changes, the bleeding, mm -hmm. the menstruation, the cessation of menstruation, menopause. You know, these things inform my psyche, our mm -hmm. bodies. You know, it, it's all tied up with my vision of who I think I am, of the stories that I can that I can envisage from myself. So uh, what I resist wholeheartedly and with passion is the idea that anybody has a right to take that away from me. Because mm. I do think that in today's highly charged society, you know, we run that risk that all of a sudden you can't talk about that kind of thing for fear of offending somebody. And I think mm -hmm. that that is wrong. And I think that, you know, male bodies in exactly the same way lend, you know, have certain implications, certain, certain things happen happen certain stories are relevant so I think we have to allow that but I think mm -hmm. we also have to allow the third sexes or you know whatever gender portrayals um, and ideas that, that people want to have and I suppose I fear that in this world where we want to re-envision and we want to be inclusive and we want to open up all possibilities which is wonderful let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater you know let's not take away from people what is mm -hmm. precious and necessary and essential to them and i think a mm -hmm. lot of the stories about female qualities a lot of the stories about masculine qualities are based on you know some of those very significant physical obvious differences which cannot mm -hmm. be denied between what we can say as gendered male bodies and simply gendered female bodies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you I have found too, you know, I do a fair amount of work with men and men only spaces. And that being said, it certainly is, uh, we've also been trans inclusive. And yeah. I also think that because there is a, uh, there is some, there's a deep medicine, actually, I feel in being able to maybe to, to witness, or at least for me to, to witness or to learn from the capacity for a, a kind of fluidity that, that can mm -hmm. find its expression in different ways. And in that yeah. sense, you know, it doesn't become a problem to fix in a way absolutely like, you know. yeah. yeah no I think it's a really interesting thing I remember many years ago now when I was blogging about something or other maybe when I first started to, to write a lot about the mythic feminine and a, a, a trans person said on my uh, website you know all of the stories you tell have men in them and have women in them you know wh where do I find my stories mm. and and I actually I saw that as a really wonderful opportunity maybe I'm just mad but you know I didn't <laughs> see that as kind of like you know well there's there's no stories that 
that define me. It's like, no, there's no stories that define me. So make them up, you know, find mm. your own mythology. And the interesting, I go back again to Jung saying that humans are myth makers. The mm. stories didn't stop 2000 years ago. You know, mm. we get to still make them up. We get to still interact with the imaginal world, to still interact with the world around us. And I think that whole idea that out of this whole transgender, you know, uh, resurgence, if you like, this ability mm -hmm. to talk about it, to, mm -hmm. um, to include it, it's very exciting time for, for those stories to, to emerge now. They didn't emerge perhaps 2,000 years ago, but they're going to emerge now. Mm. And maybe, who knows, you know, in 2,000 years, this will be the myth-making time for the transgender community. That's very exciting. So I see mm. it as an opportunity, not as an exclusion. Mm. Wow, beautiful. Well, I'd love maybe to wind down, sadly, uh, because I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> you know, I'm coming back to that posted earlier, which I can't remember the exact context, but you posed this orientation of being able to ask the right question. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe I believe it's in relation to the to the Grail and Parsifal. Yeah, and I wonder if, again, we could take a step back of uh, this moment, this cultural moment for men and women and you know the non-binary and to say what is the right question right now you know and again big, big lofty ideal perhaps in this moment but what or maybe what's what are some of the right questions that we could be asking oh gosh uh, of the world in general you mean or or of well gender? maybe in the in the spaces that we are for example again like as you said you you do work a lot with women um in particular with uh maybe reconnecting them to myth and to see themselves mythically perhaps and in a mythic, you know, cosmology. And, you know, often I, I am finding myself more so in that same realm for men. And I'm curious to know, you know, for you, what are the right questions that have emerged in this work? Um, and in particular can in a way be able to bring the capacity to, to make meaning or to discern meaning in this time. I think the, I, I, I suppose I'm I'm struggling to think of it in terms of specific questions. So mm -hmm. forgive me, but I, I would say that uh, that certainly that old Grail question, "What ails thee?" is is critical. That mm. you know, we, we we when we see pain in other people for whatever reason, whether it's you know men because they don't know how to be men anymore, women because they they've been you know suppressed for centuries, transgender people who are trying to find some sense of identity in a world that still often wants to deny it to them. I think mm. that sense of what ails thee is something that we can ask of each other and of the and of the world but hmm. there's also a, a slightly different question which you know in one of in at least one of the the grail stories the the question that must be asked was not what ails thee but was whom does the grail serve and if we think of the grail as it was in the old Celtic stories, no matter what everybody said about it in the past you know, thousand years or more, if we think of the grail as that life-giving force of the other world, as the imaginal world, if you like the anima mundi, literally, the grail is the anima mundi, it's the soul of the world. What does it serve? What do we serve? What do we serve? What is our calling? What are we here for? You know, these are really, really big questions, but that they're kind of double-sided. What ails thee and what do you serve? What do you stand mm. for almost are the questions that I think are very, very rich grounds for exploration. But gosh, mm. there'd be so many more. And yeah, that, mm -hmm. was a, that was a big question to throw at me right at the end. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for, for <laughs> drawing. And I actually really love that as, as an orientation to even this time because you know i feel that when a when the cultural conversation becomes about justice or if justice means the kind of i don't know oblivion or 
disassociation or, or disavowal of, of, quote, the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, in particular, I think for a lot of men, you know, in the wake of Me Too, of course, it was kind of like, now is the time for men to listen. Yeah. Right. And, and that's yeah. deeply important, I believe, that, you know, there really was this, this massive wake of uh, women being able to find, maybe finally in the first time, be able to speak about, in this case, you know, sexual trespass or assault and the rest. Yeah. And uh-huh. how men in that moment, you know, I believe was in a way to stand for the, the, let's say, all men or the capacity to, to bear witness to and to deeply listen. And at the same time, I feel in the aftermath, there's often this kind of like men don't, men don't have an opportunity to say anything, actually, because you've had the spotlight for too long. And now it's kind of like, you know, shut up and let us take the lead. And I feel often in there, there's this kind of deep abandonment that, yeah. that feels as if that itself would lead to a kind of, you know, healed relation between the genders and i can say you know largely for men that you know and even myself that i don't feel often in many let's say mixed spaces that i have the either permission or invitation actually to say much uh, you know and and i know that's actually appropriate i do feel in a lot of mixed spaces because again the spotlight has been given largely to men for a long time but that being said there is something deeply important to be for me and the men i see in men only spaces where we can yeah. really hear from each other you know and do that work and and in a space that maybe is more appropriate to really be heard and to be seen you know all of those places in which this question you know what ails thee like what is it in men that would be will, or the, what is it in men that would invoke or the 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 capability to perpetuate uh, let's say what led to me to you know like those are yeah. those are such deep questions that you know this idea of i don't know chucking out the bad apples although they're, they're just the men that you know were terrible men so we get rid of them and all the rest of the men they're good guys <laughs> so you know what i mean like it's obviously a very yeah. simplistic version but often it feels that way right i Rather guess than, i mean yeah yeah, no, I understand. But, you know, it's kind of like if, if, if these are archetypal qualities that men have been expressing for so long, as you as you pointed out, you know, there are, there are shadow sides to all archetypes. Mm-hmm. There are shadow sides to all archetypal patterns. But then if the shadow side has been expressing itself, the shadow side in the culture has been given too much emphasis. What mm-hmm. is the, the, the non-shadow side? And sometimes, you know, those archetypes are so overpowered now by the shadow side that we can't mm-hmm. remember. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we can't remember what a good warrior is. Nobody knows mm-hmm. what a good warrior is uh-huh. uh, because it's been so bad. But we have to yeah. uncover that. You know, we have to say, rather than just say, no, let's put those men to one side. It's like, no, let's pick apart this behavior and see how the same natural expression of the, let's just mm-hmm. use the warrior archetype because we've been talking about it. That's going to occur in a culture. That's an archetype, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't mm-hmm. get to say we don't want it we've got it but how do we then say okay that was the shadow side how do we do it better how do we how as you said earlier how do we use power better you know mm-hmm. how do we how do we just reinvent these things so it's not a mm-hmm. simple rejection or an xing out which i think never works mm-hmm. you know suppressing mm-hmm. men's voices is not going to work a matriarchy is not going to help if mm-hmm. it supplants a patriarchy we have to have something a little bit more imaginative than that i think mm-hmm. Wow, beautiful conversation. Yeah, I've right. really enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. It's lovely to talk from a men, you know, to somebody from a men's perspective for, mm-hmm. for a change. If anybody is interested in pursuing this work on the missing imagination, I have a website, which is SharonBlackie.net. And although some of the online courses there are clearly aimed at women, not all of them are. And there's a course, Celtic Studies, which is very much going into these some of these old traditions, the Grail mythology, which is very much aimed at both men and women. But I think the most exciting project for me in taking this work forward for both men and women is that beginning in January, I've got a monthly membership program, which mm. is called This Mythic Life, which is all about cultivating the mythic imagination and beginning to recognize 
recognize these mythic patterns and these archetypes that are informing our lives and our choices and our decisions. And, you know, there, there are forums where people can get together and talk about all of those things. And I would so love it if more men came mm. to that conversation, because I find in the groups that I have where I have forums or even Facebook groups um, for these courses, that the men who do show up are really, really appreciated by the women there, you know, because mm. of the honesty they bring and the questions mm-hmm. they bring and the willingness to engage. So these mm. are spaces where this kind of work can happen. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Ian Mack. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.